You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, Build Up community. We're so glad you're tuning in. I'm Steph, Build Up's Executive Portfolio Manager. Today's episode of the Nonprofit Build Up podcast is part one of a two-part conversation titled Drowning in Black Genius with Marcus Littles and A. Nicole Campbell. This is a personal favorite. And while the topic could be discussed any time of the year, we wanted to make sure that while the world is celebrating Black History Month, they can also pay attention to the literal present-day Black genius as well. In today's episode, Marcus Littles, founder and senior partner at Frontline Solutions, discusses his organization's evolution over the last 18 years. Frontline Solutions, while a management consulting firm, was never intended to be just that. This Black-founded and led company is comprised of a diverse team of activists, scholars, advocates, coaches, strategists, and artists. They draw on these multifaceted perspectives and lived experiences to engage with the organizations in the journey toward their boldest, most expansive visions. Tune in to learn more about how Frontline Solutions continues to build and support an ecosystem that is drowning in Black genius. I'm Marcus, and thank you so much for joining me on the Nonprofit Buildup. I am so excited about our conversation and really looking forward to it. And Yeah, of course. I I appreciate it. I feel like we're letting people into conversations we've had (laughs) offline. We're just recording. That's right. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. And to get us started, and just so folks can learn a little bit more about you and your work, please tell us about the kind of work that you focus on and what Frontline Solutions is all about and what are its priorities, particularly given the time we're in. Yeah, I'm Marcus Littles. I am the founder of Frontline, and this is our 19th year. 2024 is our 19th year, which is pretty amazing to say out loud. And so founded Frontline about 19 years ago, and we now see ourselves as a Black-owned, Black-led management consulting firm. We worked really, really hard over our first three, four, five years not to be a consulting firm. You know, we tried to make up new things like we wanted to be an idea lab. We wanted to be all sorts of things, but we didn't want to be consultants. <laughs> I think for a couple of reasons. One is that no one who's at Frontline or has been at Frontline really sees putting consultant on their tombstone, right, as their vocational identity. And then secondly, you know, the origins of consulting, just like the origins of so many different things are extractive. We feel like, you know, it was, you know, some white men got in a room and said, like, how do we create silver bullet answers and do that over and over again and, and are able to charge a lot for it? And, and we don't say that with judgment, but that's not what we were trying to do. But then we realized a couple of things like, you know, well, we don't have to do it like others. There actually is something that is 
challenging and inefficient about starting from scratch every single time that folk of color feel like well, we have to build something new in order to create space that's ours. No, we can either reclaim or revise what already exists. And so Frontline emerged as, you know, a set of folk who most of us don't self-identify as I've been a consultant all my life. It's a set of folk who are artists and organizers and scholars and coaches and a lot of things all bought into consulting as a platform and as a medium for liberation, right? Liberation of Black and brown people. So it was that. And then secondly, we felt like it's okay. We can do like other communities have done and take something that another community founded and use it to our advantage. And so we're like, we we don't have to, to employ a extractive version of consulting, like we can build it how we want to. And so now, as we think about our work, we didn't try to create new categories. Like we do strategy work, right? We do evaluation and learning work. We do community practice and learning communities and hold those for folk in the social sector, nonprofit, philanthropic, sometimes corporate and public sectors as well. And we do a lot of research work as well. And then we feel like sort of what's I'll say unique or what we lead with in how we approach our work is who we have around the table leading and doing that work. Like we believe that people are the key to our institution. They are our greatest asset. And it is really intentional that we are vast majority, almost exclusively black and brown folk who are on our team. And what's important about that, that's not just because we care about diversity or that we care about black people. It's also because it is to how do we recast what the knowledge economy is and what knowledge, what expertise, what genius looks like. And so that's really important to us to embody that principle of if you want to know where genius is, look to see where the black people are. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's, so that's, that's some of uh, who we are and what we do and how we think about what we do. I love that so much. There are so many questions I have just coming <laughs> from that response And what jumps out at me is the focus on legacy. And I really like the word reclaim. It just shows such ownership in in how you're approaching the work and and how you're thinking about it. You mentioned that this is about the liberation of Black and Brown people. Talk to me about how you were envisioning frontline solutions playing a role in that, given the kind of, and I'll use the word consulting, right? The consulting work that you all are leading and doing. Yeah, it's a great question. And because I've been a part of frontline in its iteration and evolution for a period of time, hopefully my answer to that question doesn't completely change, but hopefully it's evolved over time, right? Like Because I think we never set out to build a consulting firm. I did set out to build a container for the work and the community and the impact that I imagined us having collectively. Does that make sense? And so like it didn't back up. So it wasn't like consulting firm or even business, like let's start a business and then Mm -hmm. let's backfill what that business is. No, let's create a container that can leverage what some of my experiences, superpowers, and things I've been lucky around, right? Like, how do I leverage those things? And what's a container that can hold that? So I frame it that way to where although the nomenclature has changed and evolved in a good way, right? 
and I think evolved in a smart and more precise way that I'm certain that 19 years ago or 18 years ago, when I brought on a couple other co-founders, that in our first meeting, if you look at the notes, it doesn't say liberation for Black and brown people. But it does have many of the bullet points of what we would define that is right like sort of mm-hmm. you know like just like sort of what it means for a sort of community to have efficacy what does it mean for black folk to have access to positive life outcomes right like that what does it mean to reduce disparities in access to education and health and wealth and all those things it was very framed by issues or framed by the picture of the communities and families that we aspired for and again, when we, again, 19 years ago, when we started the work, that even what family looked like for each of us and meant for each of us and what communities mm-hmm. we had lived in and been like, all of those things have evolved and grown. Even like our starting place was different. And so I say that in terms of like sort of what it means, like liberation has been our North Star as our life and our circumstances and our world has also put us through a 19 year education that isn't over around what liberation means. And so the way I just pretty casually said that liberation for black and brown folk. 19 years ago, it was like all of my language was really explicitly and exclusively about Black people. And although my language has changed some, my analysis has been more of what's grown in terms of, yeah, like sort of if if we are serving the interests of Black people, then it benefits not just brown folk and indigenous folk, it benefits white people too, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like, And and I don't think I knew that or we sort of had that language or analysis 19 years ago. And I actually don't think it's complete (laughs) now that we're continuing to learn, right? But I'll just say like sort of, you know, when we started this and, you know, what's never changed is to where that consulting, a consulting firm became the container through which we pursued liberation work formally and informally, as opposed to let's build a business and figure out what it's about. We knew the what (laughs) and we learned the how. We learned how to do consulting. But what we were clear about is that liberation as a North Star. And we also were clear about is that we wanted to create a space where Black folk were on the supply side and not just on the demand side, that the knowledge economy could look like us, not just like needing the knowledge economy to acknowledge that there are disparities and that we need to do stuff for Black folk. No, and that Black and brown genius should be core to not just implementation, but also the imagining and the Mm -hmm. execution of what those things are. I like the framing of that container, right, for the work and for community and the impact. You go back to 19 years ago. What is making you think about we need to create this container or we need to think about the work differently? What's happening at that point that makes you you say, let's go form or let's go do this thing that ends up becoming frontline solutions? Yeah. So. I think a couple of things. One is the knowledge economy was not deemed a growth economy for black people. Right. No one came in any of I went to you know, sort of great public institutions that I'm super proud of, Auburn University and then University of Delaware for grad mm-hmm. school and was a part of these leadership programs and community development, community economic development. But no one came in and said, hey, a pathway 
to impacting community is via the knowledge economy. Right. I came up around community development. So it was around community development corporations. Right. Or to work in federal government, which I did for a stint. Right. At HUD. Right. Like, and you know, there was a little bit around sort of philanthropy, but I don't know that there were open doors in philanthropy. I feel like that folks that uh, who have, you know, count mentors and colleagues and friends like Ladetta Gilbert, Lauren Harris, like they had kicked down some doors, right, to where it became cracked, to where that was an opportunity as well. But that wasn't talked about in grad school. So I think just one of part of the frame for me is that the knowledge economy, and I use the word knowledge because I love to be able to like lead with that black people are brilliant and they have incredible experiences and, and like lived experience isn't a value, but it is a set of competencies. So this knowledge economy was not deemed a growth sector. So no one introduced it to me. So that's one. And it's backdrop for that 19 years ago. The other backdrop is, I'm always clear, I did not set out not only just not to build up a consulting firm, I did not set out, nor did I have aspirations of being an entrepreneur or or building something, not because I didn't have access to that, because I feel like there were folk in my family who were entrepreneurs, but there weren't folk in my family who had married being an entrepreneur with working in the social sector and community impact. And no one framed in grad school or anywhere else that those two things were possible. But when I worked at the Ford Foundation, as a program associate, I had the benefit of working for, and, and this is not always the case at any institution or in philanthropy, but like worked for and with three or four of the program officers, senior program officers who I reported to. One, they were all people of color, but two, they were also all four of them incredibly vested in me, like sort of personally and interpersonally, in, in a way that was alluring, in a way that was actually not representative of what it means to come into the, like the workforce in a professional sort of position. Right. So I later on was like, oh, like, why don't these people love me? <laughs> like the last like <laughs> job I was, because they loved me, right? But like so I worked for like Lynetta Kilman, Lauren Harris, Miguel Garcia, Michelle DePass. I worked with them and we would go into meetings in the foundation, outside the foundation. And oftentimes there would be these conversations around, so where do we find a black intermediary? Where do we find uh, Latino, Latina scholars to partner with? Like, where are they? It was this where's Waldo conversation. And then so after those meetings, whether it was with all of them or any of them individually, we would debrief. And, you know, they were my bosses and mentors. And I would look at them and they would always say, I don't know what they're talking about, that these people are all over the place. Because I would always think like, oh, like, what do you mean? Where are these folk? I went to college with these people. I went to grad school with these people. I go to the gym with them. I drink with them. I go to church with them. I drink with them after church, right? Like they're everywhere, right? Like So, so the context for me was I brought all of that with me when me and colleagues got in the room and were like, sort of, what do we want to do and be? Even if we didn't know consulting, what we did know is there are so many Black folk who have so much genius to be on the supply side of the knowledge economy and not just on the demand side. 
we knew that. <laughs> and if we didn't know them personally, it would take two or three calls or texts or emails to find you fill in the blank. Like I'm looking for sort of someone who knows how to do blank. It was like as a personal challenge, we we're like, oh, well, that's not hard to find. That's what we brought in. And so again, the container was, what does it mean to be a container that can leverage those relationships that living a life where we were drowning in black genius, <laughs> in our families, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in everywhere. And so that's what we came into the room with. And so when the Ford Foundation asked me around, so do, can you help us figure out what to do after Hurricane Katrina? And so that's why I you know, quit my job and started consulting, even though I thought it was short term and then didn't have enough. You know, I was like, oh, I need to pick up a couple other things. And then another colleague said, hey, we want to do this exploration around philanthropic investment around black men and boys. Would you do that research? I asked two people, two young folk who were previously my little brothers almost and, and mentees and asked them, hey, would you? But they're geniuses. Right. So it was <laughs> and asking them, would you work with me on that this project? And that project grew. And folks started asking us to do other things. And so when we were doing and building at the same time, our vision wasn't a firm. Our vision was a container to be able when someone comes and says, hey, do you know this? Can you find this? Like, will you help us with this? That our answer would be yes, not because we are inherently geniuses, but because we're drowning. them, Because we are going to leverage this thing. And we didn't know. Oh, well. That means we'll have enough to actually hire people and oh, like we <laughs> payroll benefits, like we backfill. Oh, well, what do we need to equip this container with for it to be sustainable and for our work to be even more powerful? So you said that phrase, thinking about it like you're drowning in black genius, right? Yeah. You also mentioned communities of learning and communities of practice that you all facilitate and host. How do those two things come together in a meaningful way and kind of get us close to that vision that I now have of drowning in Black Jesus? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I think about, you know, our practice around communities of practice and learning communities is actually something that has been where we've gotten more of that work. We've been asked to do more of that work. I would say just before COVID and definitely during COVID, a lot of it being done virtually, right? And previous to that, we were helping do a lot of, you know, for foundations, grantee convenings per se, like, like, how, like let's help us bring our grantees together and learn from them with them, or sometimes hold space for sets of grantees so they can be in community and learn from an exchange with one another. And it's fascinating how we, I mean, there's some interest. I, I think about different clients and even how we got into that body of work. I mean, one of our early clients, Maisha Simmons at, at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was like, we were co-thinkers. And so let's do a convening. We're like, okay. Like we had not planned a big convening before that did that kind of four, three or four years in a row. But I bring that up because I think that before we were being engaged as, oh, like you have expertise in curating, facilitating and managing communities of practice and learning communities. 
that it was, you know, help us with this grantee convening and the superpower we had, the capital that we fought. But I don't know that we even realized that we had when we brought to those spaces and is when we were curating who was going to come and speak and who were going to be the plenary speakers or facilitators or those yeah. sort of things. We always were very good at identifying genius or amazingly talented folk that the client, the philanthropic institution, many times had not heard of or did not know about. And I want to be really clear, this isn't like sort of that the institution of the person we were working with was a white program officer, you know what I mean? Or no, these are like sort of black and brown folk, and it's not speaking disparagingly of them. We're like, no, like let's democratize and spread out who these powerful institutions see as leaders in doing this work, right? Like sort of how do we break down a unintentional tendency for Black exceptionalism? And it was fascinating. One of my favorite, most proud moments early on is that when we were at, it was our first convening, we were working with Robert Johnson and Maisha Simmons. And this before the book, before he is as prominent as he is now, we really wanted to get Brian Stevenson to speak in front of this convening. And then we also had access to his brother, Howard Stevenson, who was a brilliant scholar, an amazing sort of thought leader in his own right. And so we had reached out, reached out, reached out. Brian wasn't sure he was going to be able to do it, but we had confirmed his brother. And then his brother told Brian, well, I'm going to do it. And and Brian Stevenson reached back out to us and said, I've never been asked to speak with my brother before. Like they had never spoken together. And to be clear, when we are trying to create these platforms, I mean, it was the most amazing sort of thing ever. There was not a dry eye in the place. But the amazing thing is we did nothing. We did zero we had zero contribution to how brilliant Brian Stevenson and Howard Stevenson were. We did create this platform that more people knew that than did before. So how do you change who the learners are and who the teachers are? Like, how do you broaden folks' imaginations and or knowledge of all of the different folk who are doing amazing work? And so I'm super, super proud of, you know, we could name all of these folk who are being asked all the time to come and speak to philanthropy, speak to civil rights organizations, et cetera, who are main stage folk now that when some of them, they were teenagers and some of them were in their early 20s and some of them were just early in their career, where because we were grounded in community, because this was working in communities where Black folk lived and played and struggled was our happy place, was our career and, and who we are personally and interpersonally, that we had identified and seen those folk earlier and was like, hey, come speak to this group. Come be a part of this convening. And we did not know that that was this special asset. It was because we're drowning in Black genius. And we built the trust from clients to where like, okay, I've never heard of this person, but we're going to rock with you. Nine times out of 10, we made them look good, which was a big part of, ended up being our growth strategy is to where folk trusted us once. And then the next thing was not, hey, can you do another grantee convening for me? They'd ask, well, do you know anything about research? Do y'all know evaluation? Because we trust you. And your ability to figure things out, but also the folk you are putting in front of us to lead this work are the people we always wanted to support, but sometimes didn't have access to, or sometimes the courage to push it through their institutions. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast. 
Tune in next week for part two of this conversation. To learn more about how you can work with the Build Up Companies, visit www.buildupcompanies.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Build Up. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.